Welcome to Creating a Buzz About Health podcast with Paula Carnell. Terrain is everything. And it's not one thing. It's not a magic pill. It's not just the minerals. It's not just the herbs. It's not just the water. It's the air. It's your mental terrain. It's what you believe and what you have capacity to understand. And if you believe we're a machine and once a bit's broken, it can't be fixed, then you're going to remain broken. If you can believe nature will heal, you've got to create the environment for nature to heal itself. And it's the same with bees. Greetings, beautiful humans. Ben here. Paula Carnell was a well-known artist living in England who, in 2008, fell ill and became bed and wheelchair bound with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a connective tissue disorder. The allopathic system told her little could be done, but through a combination of herbal medicine, clean water, and plant-based minerals, she achieved a full recovery seven years later, and in that same time, answered a calling to begin working with bees. Today, she is an internationally known bee expert, offering books and courses on beekeeping. While Mike and I intended for this to be a terrain transformation story, it evolved in real time from that into an amazing conversation about plants, plant medicines, bees, and the future of our species. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome back to Terrain Theory. Paula Carnell, welcome to Terrain Theory. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you. You reached out to us across social media a couple months ago. It's taken us a little bit to get you here, but very excited because in your outreach, you said, I have a really interesting terrain transformation story that you were bed and wheelchair bound with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome for seven years, and that you you healed yourself over the last six years using herbal medicine, clean water, and plant-based minerals, which of course, as the Terrain Theory podcast is right up our alley. So love to jump in and hear a little bit more about one, who you are and how you came to that point first coming down with Ehlers-Danlos. Let's hear it. Okay. Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite a, a quite a story. So I'm I'm 53 now. And as a child, I was a, a sickly child. I had asthma, I had hay fever, I had a lot of bronchitis. So I was given a lot of drugs, you know, um, pharmaceutical medicines, um, right through till I was about 18. So for asthma and, and all kinds of things. And I had a lot of joint problems. Um, and then parallel to that, I'd always wanted to be an artist. And so I became an artist. So at the age of 20, I set up my own business as an artist. And I was a professional artist till I was 40. Um, and going back a bit, when I was 18, I started to collapse. And my, my GP, my doctor, had said, well, it's because you've been on these asthma drugs all your life and you either get used to collapsing or you die of an asthma attack. And so that was my first sort of real head on clash with Western medicine. And I was 18. I was at art school. I was really sort of ready to embrace my my life as an artist. And um, and that wasn't acceptable to me. And so I literally would have gone to anyone. I would have gone to a witch doctor and I just was, you know, I was scouring all the little postcards you see everywhere, you know, to, to find somebody 
who was who I felt could heal me. And by well, not really coincidence, but by um, you know luck, uh, a fellow art student of mine, she had a friend whose mum was a really well-known medical herbalist, and lived in the town I was, which is in East Anglia. I was in Ipswich, and um, her name was Janet Kipax, and her son Stephen Kipax was he'd you know he'd grown up with a herbalist mother so he was an embodiment of of herbal medicine but he was also studying to be a Chinese doctor so he agreed to take me on as a patient at no cost so I could be you know one of his student examples and I just had to pay for any medication and within three weeks he got me off all my inhalers and everything and and I haven't been back since so that was when I was 18 so that was my first introduction to terrain theory really and I, I was very good because I was so sick. I did everything he said. And um, and then throughout my adult life, I would have various problems and I would always just phone up. And, and I suppose I was treating herbs allopathically. So it's like, OK, I've got this problem. What will fix that? So, you know, through having children, I'd have a lot of dislocations, um, which turned out to be Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I had a lot of joint pain which would have all these different complications. Anyway, I had a career as an artist for 20 years. I was really successful and already I was quite clean living. So I didn't drink coffee. I, I barely drank alcohol. Um, although I remember, you know, about this, oh, I just have the odd drink. But um, yeah, you know, I've, everything was moderation, you know, and I was very conscious of everything I ate and, and everything I did. So I really thought I was a very healthy person however during um, the 20 years I'd gone through a divorce I worked 24 7 I was living my passion I had a lot of stress with with the business um, my first husband had left when my boys were one and three and I had a gallery and a big mortgage and seven staff so you know there was stress which I didn't have time to deal with um, and after he left I then trained as a Reiki practitioner not to have patience, but because the Reiki really helped me manage the stress of suddenly becoming a single parent. Um, and um, and then it was so good that I then thought, you know, I've, I've got to be able to do this myself. So I had that Reiki going on. So again, I was very conscious about the body's ability to heal. So then I met my second husband. Um, my career was going really well as a, a, an artist. Um, I was exhibiting in London and in America and then I literally got to 40 years of age and I started to collapse again and sort of constant nausea so I kept thinking oh maybe I'm pregnant um, but I wasn't and then literally just after my 40th birthday I became severely disabled so I was laying flat in bed in a dark room couldn't really be touched couldn't have any sound um I, I couldn't look at anything or anybody in the eyes because it would make me sick and if I lifted my head over the pillow I'd be sick and my body it felt like everything inside was shaking and I thought if I touch somebody they must be able to feel how my body was just jangling it was like I was plugged in you know to an electric socket and um it took six years of being in that state before I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So I was 46 years of age, 
they diagnosed Ehlers-Danlos and they said it's a genetic condition. You were born with it. It explained the asthma, explains the dislocations or the joint pain. And Ehlers-Danlos, for those who, who aren't aware, it's um, a connective dish, tissue disorder. So with everybody who has it, it affects them on different levels. So some of the plus points is you have very smooth skin with not a lot of hair, although I've made up for it on my head. Um, and then you have... Um, you dislocate really easily. And because connective tissue is around your whole body, it, that has a, a double whammy. It can affect your whole body. It can affect all the organs of your body. So um, the connective tissue is like the elastic bands, you know, and it, it covers everything and it's under our skin and supports our joints. And with Ehlers-Danlos, the more you use it, it becomes like a soggy, saggy elastic band. It doesn't spring back. And our bodies are not very good at coping with toxins, interestingly. And um, so I had had one general anaesthetic after I'd had my first child. I'd had a natural birth, but then I had to go in and have an op. And it really took me nearly a year before I felt that that um, general anaesthetic had left my body. And also things like anaesthetics, they don't work. So if ever you have an anaesthetic at the dentist, they're just putting it in and you're going, I can still feel it, still feel it, still feel it, still feel it, you know, and now I've got an adrenaline rush, you know, it was just, um, and that's one of the things with Ellis Danlos. And then I had postural orthostatic tachycardia, which means if you're upright, your blood pressure just drops so low that, you know, you, you pass out. So, um, but throughout the six years before I had my diagnosis, I was researching health, nutrition. I found that if I stopped any sugar, that I wouldn't um, feel so nauseous. I had already stopped wheat. I'd not been eating wheat for a number of years anyway. So I was sort of gluten-free. I was already on um, organic food. Um, and, uh, you know, I tried everything and I just couldn't get beyond about two hours a day of activity. So one of the things, it's, it's, it's all what I love about Ellis Danlos, my my weakness is actually my strength because it's connective tissue and everything in my life is connected. So the art and the bees. So two years into being ill, completely bed bound, trying to think about what I can do because I couldn't paint and I, we couldn't have a party and I couldn't go anywhere. So my husband was saying, Oh, you know, I really want to get you something special for your birthday. And I just felt I wanted a beehive. I didn't know why I just knew I wanted a beehive and so he built me a beehive. So the idea was I could lay in bed, watch the bees. And, um, and a local beekeeper put bees in. And again, that was an incredible story how I met this beekeeper. So I've, I've got a book, Artist to Bees, which is that story. And, and part of that is how I met the, the beekeeper, which was incredible. And so he taught me beekeeping. So once a week, I'd be sort of wheeled out the house, propped up near the beehive. I pretend to be well for an hour or so. And he would teach me beekeeping. And, you know, I challenged everything. I was like, why are you using smoke? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And the big alarm bell for me was our first harvest. We had an extraordinary honey harvest of 140 pounds from my bees. One colony, 140 pounds of honey. So I was really pleased. We split it 50-50. I had 70 jars of honey and I was like, oh, wow, this is Christmas sorted. You know, everyone's going to have a jar of honey. And then the next time my beekeeper came, he had this big white block of fondant. And I was like, what, what is this? And he said, oh, it's, it's fondant. We've got to feed the bees. 
I said, what do you mean we've got to feed the bees? So we've taken all their honey. And I was so shocked because even though I'd been keeping the bees, we'd taken the honey, I still hadn't quite seen that connection that the bees need honey to feed themselves. And of course, we already jarred up the honey and I was like, oh my gosh, this is awful. And I knew that I couldn't eat sugar. I wouldn't give sugar to my boys. I was thinking, why on earth would anyone give sugar? Such a toxin to wild animals. So that was the first thing. And then fast forwarding when I was getting better and I started going to bee meetings, beekeepers would, I'd start to raise this question about honey and they'd go, oh, everyone knows honey and sugar is just the same. And, you know, like 11 years on, I've suddenly thought, oh, well, you know, if it is just the same, why do we go to so much trouble to take it? You know, it's the, the amazing, you know, kickback, which took me 11 years to come up with. But, you know, so that put me on a quest to really prove why I knew honey was different. So a lot of my motivation, I I suppose all my life I've been intuitive, all my life I've been self-employed, all my life I've worked on what I felt. My paintings were what I felt I had to paint. I've always felt I've channeled, you know, I've just been in a meditative state and paintings would flow through and I'd paint them. Um, and, And even through my illness, I knew I I would have this vision of me being 98 years of age, walking along a Hebridean sandy beach, healthy, you know. So I knew that between 40 and 98, there was going to be this journey and there would be some point where I'd be walking again. Um, So that helped just clinging on to that. And and it is this intuition. And I suppose even with my art, and throughout my life, I've I've known things. I've really felt things so strong and, and shocked when I have to justify what I know. So with the asthma recovery, with, you know, natural childbirth, all these things, which I just knew. And yet people are like, well, how can you do that? How, you know, that doesn't make sense. Or but the doctor says. And so I suppose to protect myself, I've been a real inquisitive researcher so I've always tried to look up and and prove have the site the science to prove what I know and so then this happened with the bees so when I'd say well we shouldn't be using smoke or we shouldn't be feeding them sugar or we shouldn't be using chemicals in the hive and all this stuff and and um I'd have to prove it you know I'd have to prove where I was right and I think the big shock is just how many people never question anything Mm. And that is such a shocker. Um, So six years in, I get my diagnosis. I'd done lots of research on Ehlers-Danlos. So for about two years before I had the diagnosis, I was pretty sure that was what it was. And so it was really a confirmation diagnosis. It's still a bit of a shocker when you're told that it's genetic, therefore nothing can be done about it. And here's some antidepressants or painkillers and get your affairs in order. And I'm sorry, you won't make it to 50. Um, So I did grieve, you know, for a good week or so. It's like, poor me, I really am ill. Um, And I think that's one of the interesting things as well about chronic illness. And And it's a really, this is why terrain theory is so important, because when you have a chronic illness and Western medicine can't explain it, you become focused on your symptoms because you want to find that symptom that then a doctor will go, oh, now I know what it is. We can do that for you. And we have been so conditioned for other people to heal us that we don't take that full responsibility. So once I had that diagnosis, it was like, brilliant. 
now I've got proof that I am really ill. It wasn't all in my head. I haven't made it up. And I'd already decided I would go to a medical herbalist who had coincidentally moved into my town. So I was <laughs> able to visit her. And um, so I became a patient of Lucy Jones, who has a clinic in Castle Carey, my town. And the first thing she said, so I went and I said, look, I've got Ella's Danlos and I want you to heal me. And the first thing she said is, I'm not going to heal you. And I don't care about your diagnosis. And it was like, oh, gosh, scary. <laughs> and um, and yet she was absolutely right because she's treating me as an individual. And and it wasn't just the symptoms I had now or the symptoms I'd had the last six years. It was my whole life. It was every trauma. It was everything in my life. And um, it was amazing. Within eight months, I was out of the wheelchair and I felt I had control of my life. I didn't need carers. I mean, I needed carers to come in and look after me and look after my kids, look after my family. And suddenly I could potter around the house and cook a meal and put a wash on and, you know, do normal things. So I was ecstatic because I could walk with walking sticks. Um, I could cook a meal for my kids. I could be a friend. I could be, you know, a privileged wife who didn't have to work, I suppose, instead of being a sick person who needed lots of support. So I was really content, really happy. And I and already I was thinking, wow, I've proven the doctors wrong. You know, I've I've I'm getting better. And then my mum came across plant based minerals and I was really sceptical of supplements. So throughout my illness, I would see various practitioners and they'd say, oh, you should try this. You should try that. And I would try them. But I was really, really sceptical because as a teenager, there were two things that stuck in my mind. And I find this interesting as well, that you think of all the information we get in our lives and there'll be these odd things that you never forget that just float around until they become absolutely important. One of them was that Himalayan monks are living to an extraordinary age because they're drinking glacier milk. And that was all it was, but it just stayed in my head and floated around. The other thing, I live near Glastonbury Festival. So as a teenager, one of the jobs that a lot of people I knew would do is work for festival organizers and in particular, the mobile toilets. And something that they would tell me is, and I heard this from more than one person. One of the biggest problems of mobile toilet companies is disposing of the pile of supplements that pass right through people. And I was like, but this is like the 80s, 1980s. And I said, how do you know they're supplements? And they go, because they've still got the brand names written on them. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I'd heard this. <laughs> we're, in the so 80s. we're talking. Hold on. We're talking about like multivitamins. Yeah, that just pass through us. Don't get absorbed at all. And these no. people are these people are seeing it. Yeah. And then they're having to dispose of them, you okay. know, and that. So I was like from a teenager, I was like, well, there's no point in having multivirts, multi anything. So then my mum comes up and says, oh, there's this plant based mineral and I think you should try it. And I'm like, oh, you know, for a start, it was the first time that I wasn't spending any money every month on anything because the herbal medicine was quite expensive. So I had, you know, I'd had two months of not having to spend money. I wasn't working. I was still, you know, officially disabled. I still needed a stick. And so, and these minerals, it was like, you know, 25 pound a month. And after a couple of months, because I'd seen a real difference in my mum's health. And so 
I thought, okay, I'll give them a shot. Um, a week in, the CEO of this company was doing a talk in Glastonbury and I decided to go. And it's, you know, it's an MLM business as well. So my son, my eldest son, he came with me. So I didn't get roped into some scam. He was like, oh, mom, it's a scam. You know, oh, you shouldn't go. Anyway, so we both went. So I drove half an hour, a two hour meeting. And then I drove half an hour back talking nonstop. And I realized that I had not been able to drive for, you know, like seven years um, and certainly not talking and not attended an event. So I might have dropped a kid off somewhere and then perhaps had, um, you know, a mocha or a hot chocolate so I could drive back again, you know, but not to attend something, drive back. And not only that, both my son and I were so blown away by meeting the CEO and asking him all these questions. Where are these minerals from? What happens? How long are they going to last for? How ethical is it? You know, all this. And, you know, really impressed with the responses that we came back and I then went on my computer and then signed up to be a distributor, as did my son. And then the week after that, or two weeks after that, three weeks into taking them, I was in London for a week with my other son, he was doing work experience for an editing company. So he's like 15. My older son, who was then 17, 18, I'd done it with him two years before. But what, what we'd done was I was in the wheelchair. So I'd be in bed all day in the hotel. He'd be doing work experience. And in the evenings, he'd push me in the wheelchair and we'd go and have a meal together. So it was mother-son time, you know. And um, so this time I thought I'm going to go with my other son. But this time I've got walking sticks instead of the wheelchair. But what happened was my mind changed because, and it wasn't a case of, oh, I've taken a tablet, now I've got energy. It was a case of, oh, I really fancy doing this. Oh, I really fancy going there. I don't want to lay on the bed. And there was a bus stop outside the hotel. So I would then um, get on the bus and go somewhere. Now, because I knew London from my art days and student days, I would walk a lot of London. So I really know the area well. And it was a really hot week. So I'd be on the bus, it'd be really hot, there'd be all the traffic. And I just think, oh, I'm going to get off and walk. And then I'd get off and walk and then realise I'd walked a mile. Or I'd gone into a shop and I'd come out and I think, what's missing? Oh my gosh, I've left my walking stick in the shop. And it was so marked. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is freaky. You know, I'm actually better. So... <laughs> <laughs> Two months after that, I booked for my husband and I to walk the Dorset Coast Path. And we walked from Weymouth to Swanage, which is, it's a training path that people use to do the Inca Trail. I mean, it's really tough path. It's real, it's chalk and it's rubbly and it's up and down. So we did that walk in two and a half days. And I knew if I did that walk, I was no longer disabled. So we did it and then I was no longer disabled. So, so that was my Ellis Danlos story. And, um, well, let me, let me, said, let me actually, let me stop you real quick because yeah. the, the, the question that's burning. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only that, um, I, I want to know first in that first, that first part or first phase of your journey towards healing, you, you mentioned herbal sort of herbal medicines and then these minerals. I want to know what were those herbal medicines and also what were those minerals? Right. Yeah. Okay. So the herbal medicines, I don't even know because Lucy would put together tinctures that would change and would be right for me as my, my journey progressed. And I think this is what's so important is that 
we have to understand that herbs are very energetic. It's energetic medicine. And I'm now studying, I mean, from being a patient, I started my own studies as a, a medical herbalist. So I'm six years into studying. And I realized that if I was to prescribe or if she prescribed to me a herbal tincture and it listed the herbs that were in there, I would then look up those herbs and go, oh, that's for this. That's for that. Oh, have I got this? Have I got that? Or mm. I haven't got this or I haven't got that. And this is why it's so important, because when you're talking to a medical herbalist, they're asking you questions to find out about the deep work that you need healing that you might not be conscious of, but the herbs are. And so when herbs are prescribed, the herbalist, a really good practiced herbalist is, is not using them allopathically. It's not like, oh, your connect, connective tissue doesn't work. So this herb will fix connective tissue. It's okay. Why does your connective tissue not heal? What wounds have you got that need healing that will put your body, improve the terrain so your body can heal itself? Mm -hmm. And I think this is this is so vital. And one of the first things I learned on the herbal medicine course was this wonderful phrase, morbid matter from Lindlar. So one of the textbooks is um, all three of the textbooks are by Lindlar. And it, it's pretty heavy duty naturopathic medicine and herbal medicine. But he describes how morbid matter in the body the body has to get rid of it and the more morbid matter you have the more strain it is on the body and I think it describes it so well because if we input toxins or we have undigested food or we've got leaky gut um, or you have damage inside your body you've got this morbid matter that has to be broken down mm. and so to have a terrain that is free of morbid matter enables your body to function well so so yeah that was the herb so I really don't know I don't know what I had but the other thing that was interesting is that when you start studying herbal medicine you have to start being aware of the herbs that are growing in your environment and I'm lucky enough to have quite a big garden and and not have time for gardening and so I have all sorts of herbs that appear and the first unidentified herb that appeared in abundance in my garden ended up being teasel and it took two years before I realized what it was because the first year it would be this clump of leaves and you wouldn't know what it was going to be and then the next year it suddenly shoots up this teasel it's like a thistle thing and do you know what teasel is used for I do not connective tissue <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it was like whoa yeah. you know and and so I find it fascinating about what is growing around you and so this whole idea of, oh, we should have this incredible herb that grows in this place that, you know, you know, the medicine we need is all around us because we are connected to the earth. We're connected to our environment and everything in nature wants balance and well-being. And so it's giving us the plants that we need to, to heal us. But what do we do? We ignore it all and we import stuff from all around the world. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Or, or, or in this country, in this country, we we spray weed killer on things <gasps> like on things like dandelion, which, you know, every part of the dandelion has a purpose. It has a use, oh. has a positive use for us. And our lawns, 
you know, you look around America and you've got these manicured, beautiful, you know, little golf course type lawns that have just been sprayed with fertilizer, unnatural fertilizer and weed killer, weed killer, where what wants to pop up everywhere I look are the dandelions. And so through yeah. what you're saying, what's the dandelion trying to tell us? Probably that everyone around us needs more of this dandelion in its in our life and you know, do that across everything. And Mike has a funny story. It's interesting that you mentioned that about ghost pipe, right, Mike? The ghost pipe, which is not quite a mushroom. Well, first and- first about dandelion, since you yeah, brought that ahead. up on that thread. So I have a lot of dandelion. I, I just started gardening last year. You know, I am a career musician who's been on the road for 20 years, all the warm weather months, especially that's festival season. But the last two years, not so much. So I've started gardening and paying attention to what grows all around me, just like you said. In fact, my very first exploration of, I guess what you would say, the allopathic model of of applying an herb for a specific symptom was uh, some mosquito bites. My daughter's like super mosquito bite prone. So she's always itching. And I'm looking through this book that I had just got probably from Impulse Instagram by, you know, the lost book of herbal remedies or whatever it is. And it says, okay, plantain is good. A plantain poultice is is good for itchiness. I was like, okay, so what does plantain look like? And just just like you just said, literally from my chair I was sitting in in my kitchen, the closest green thing that was lining my entire driveway was all plantain. Like my whole yard was just like bursting with plantain where in the past I just trampled over it. I walked over it. I completely ignored it. I mowed it down. Um, so that was sort of mind blowing. Literally the closest thing I could see was the the first one that I knew to look for. And then recently, now that I'm my my senses are a little more dialed in, I start, start with the obvious. Sure. Dandelion. Um, I know that dandelion tea is a thing and then drying the roots you can, but every part of the dandelion is beneficial. I started uh, in harvesting the dandelions that just grew around my garden beds. They weren't, they weren't something I planted intentionally. They were just sort of the quote unquote weeds popping up. So I started trimming the leaves, making tea out of them. And then where one might just chuck the leaves after they make the tea, I realized, holy shit, these leaves taste exactly like spinach. Like you can just use it. It's like, it just gives and it gives and it gives. It's like that Shel Silverstein book, The Giving Tree. It's like, it just, oh, yeah. just the nature just can't stop giving. And it's just sort of mind blowing that some of these, I just wanted to speak to Dandelion. Like what an amazing, plentiful gift beautiful it's good for the bees i like ben mentioned i just started keeping bees and so all that but the ghost pipe ben so again last july the first july ever in my life where i was home every day and i was out in the woods i only have an acre and a half and i was wandering through this little ridge and there were these do you know ghost pipe are you familiar no no not at all or some people i don't i don't know the the Latin name for it. We call it ghost pipe or Indian ghost pipe. Um, it has no chlorophyll. It's it's like an albino right. plant. It's white, but it looks like a perfect rose. It's this beautiful oh, wow. white flower that never in my life had I seen anything like. And at first, like a lot of people, especially when it just breaks through the ground, I thought it was a mushroom because it just had the appearance of a mushroom. And I'm sort of fascinated in learning more about mushrooms. And I took a bunch of photos and I did some research and learned all about ghost pipe and its medicinal qualities. Um, It is a powerful 
pain reliever and also i guess it's in the kit of herbalists who go to music festivals and need tools at their disposal to help people who have maybe taken too much psychedelics help them come in for a landing ghost pipe will help you come in for a landing in the psychedelic realm which fascinating but i so i made a tincture i also like they're very when you when you research it apparently you can't really cultivate ghost pipe it's gonna pop up where it's gonna pop up it's very hard to cultivate and you have to treat it with a lot of respect i reached out to some native american friends who live around here who sort of gave me that heads up to don't don't go telling everybody that you found ghost pipe be very precious with it and don't take too much if you take any at all and of course me being me being sort of impetuous the first thing i did like i picked one i fucking threw it in a frying pan and ate it and gave me diarrhea like right away like i'm i'm i can be an idiot like that because i get so excited and I've, I've learned from my lessons uh or from my experiences so then i i treated it with more respect uh, i harvested some ghost pipe not too much as you crush it up this this white plant turns this deep rich purple and your hands are all stained purple like where did this color even come from and i put you know maybe a mason jar a third full or or you know not quite half and i filled the rest with an organic vodka and shook it every day for a couple of weeks and i had this massive jar of a healing tincture which then like you said i gave to all my friends for christmas the following year and it, it just so much so much pride wrapped up in the discovery and then the education and stumbling a little bit, but then uh, gleaning respect and then being able to share with your community. It's just, um, there's nothing quite like it, right? No, exactly. And as you said, nature just keeps on giving. Yeah. And I love, it's so interesting that you talk about the dandelion because the dandelion is my favorite flower and it's also my favorite honey. And from working with bees, and and also being inspired by a, an American beekeeper, Jacqueline Freeman. Have you come across her? No, but I'll write that down. She's written a book called The Song of Increase, which is just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But she talks about how the bees communicate with the plants and how the bees know the plants have minerals. So I was like, oh, minerals, you know, where does this come in? Then I found a British study from the Welsh Botanic Gardens, where they have 8,000 species of plants and they wanted to know which plants their bees went to to make the honey. So they had the honey tested and what they found was the bees favoured 11 species. And they included hazel, willow, um, brambles, clover. It was basically all the weeds, everything in the hedgerows and the dandelions. And they were like, wow, why, why would they do that? But from Jacqueline Freeman and then through my herbal medicine studies, I could connect everything. And each herb has a purpose. Everything, everyone has a purpose. Herbs have a purpose and they process the metallic minerals into the plant-based minerals. Now, before I had minerals and before I went and met the CEO, I didn't know anything about minerals. And basically, Minerals are, are the rock form, you know, you, you have, um, you know, gold, silver, calcium, whatever, and they're in a rock form, a metallic form, iron. 
And what plants do is they transform that rock form into a plant-based form. And if we eat the plant-based form, the molecular structure is such that the molecules go straight into our cells. So we absorb them. And the, the minerals are the spark plugs of life. So we need a minimum of 65 minerals every day, but trace amounts, which of course, conventional medicine doesn't measure trace amounts. It measures the daily recommended amount of a ground up nail, you know, for iron. And so that's, that's that thing. And so the plant-based minerals I had come from actually a, um, a Native American reserve in Utah, where it was a glacier melt. So again, glacier milk, glacier melt. And it's this mineral soil. So it's where there was ancient rich forest that was frozen in the ice age. And then as it defrosted into a glacier and then into a layer of soil, it's now extracted and, and made into these little mineral things or powders. So I have a, a powder that I, I give the bees and take myself. Anyway, what dandelions do, they have really long, deep tap roots. They go down into the soil and they break down calcium and potassium to bring it to the surface. Now, like you, everyone around here kills their dandelions. They, you know, dig them up. They do whatever they can. They curse them, um, which I find interesting. Where has the hatred of dandelions come from? Could it possibly have come from the companies that make the killers of dandelions? Anyway. So if you leave the leaves on the soil, they brought the minerals from deep down to the surface. Now we have a lot of orchards around here, apple orchards, cider apple orchards, and apple trees and fruit trees have very shallow roots. So they can't reach the minerals deep down. So they need the dandelions to bring those minerals to the surface so they can absorb them. Now the really amazing thing is that the seeds of dandelions are taken by the wind for up to 60 miles. And they will only take root in soil that needs calcium and potassium. So <laughs> if you leave them long enough, they move on. They march because they've rebalanced that soil. And I've seen that with the field behind our house 17 years ago, full of dandelions. Then, you know, 12 years ago, I start keeping bees. So I have an interest in dandelions. The last two years, hardly any dandelions in the field, but they've moved into our garden. Whereas my dad has been digging up his dandelions. He's not allowed to poison them anymore, but he's been trying to destroy dandelions for 55 years and he's still got them in his lawn. And it's because he won't let them do what they're there to do. And this is the thing. We look at everything from a human perspective mm. of this short term and not observing the march of nature and the cycles and the movements it's just and the intention you know, i can't help but think talking about minerals and i've been learning more about this myself you know how does the dandelion know quote unquote know where to go and i just keep coming back to like this magnetic quality of energy magnetic fields and that there's literally an energetic pull that nature is is guided by a magnetic intelligence and it's not on one hand, you're like, yeah, whatever, Mike, keep dreaming. On the other hand, it's like, it's just like basic physics. It's like, we've got some, some minerals and some metals and electric fields and, and resonance. And just like you were saying about um, studying herbs and, and resonance matching, not so much what herb does what, but like, and we've talked about kinetic muscle testing, Ben, you mentioned that with uh, the conversation with your, your chiropractor and, it seems that uh, we talked about Shilajit 
recently and that's very much what you're talking about coming from the mountain the the glacier melt and the the set it's all magnets so much of it, it is. is 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 a uh, attraction it's and well, it's and so bees. beautiful yeah yeah keep oh. going well and bees so drones they have an increase of magnetite in their abdomens before <laughs> they leave the hive so they because if you heard of drone congregation areas so it's where the male bees hang out. It's like a male pub, you know, and they hang out all day waiting for the female queens to go. Well, Jacqueline Freeman, she, in her book, Song of Increase, she talks, she's um, a biodynamic farmer and she's been keeping bees probably 20 years now. But she'd always been asking them questions. And then about 10 years ago, the bees started replying, you know. And so in her book, she says, oh, you know, it's this time of year, the bees are doing that, all from a human perspective. Then she has this, paragraph which is in our own words from the bees so what they've told her is happening and it's really spiritual and it's all about that connection with energetics so when I started keeping bees um I would and when I was well I started to get asked to rescue bees mm -hmm. so quite often bees would go into people's houses and it's a good way of getting a, a colony and, and learning about beekeeping mm -hmm. and I work with an, another beekeeper who does this as well and we'd done a few together and then he phoned me one day and he said oh he goes I've I had to speak to you he said because something really weird's happened and he'd called been called out to this house and he um had to go up into the loft and then uh, I mean are you familiar with Tom Seeley Professor Tom Seeley I'm not he's one of the biggest scientists on bees who was very conventional in the 1970s so um, and he's from Cornell University and he's written all sorts of incredible books. He's now come full circle to realizing the power of, of natural beekeeping or he calls it Darwinian beekeeping. Anyway, he had declared years ago that wild bees, because of where he studied them in the Arnott Forest um, in upstate New York, um, wild bees chose to be half a mile apart. So he always said bees in the wild, they need to be half a mile apart. So if you have more than one colony together, you're going against what Professor Tom Seeley says, and therefore, you know, the bees are not going to be well. And of course, conventional beekeepers have sometimes hundreds altogether. So there was always that dilemma. And then, um, but when you go and rescue bees from people's roofs, you often find that it's not that, they'll be closer together. And Matt had phoned me and he said, I've just opened up a roof and there's three colonies really close together, loads of honey, no disease, really healthy, really chilled out. What's going on? And I found myself saying, I wonder if they're on a ley line, not really knowing what a ley line was, not knowing about energetics. And he was like, oh, wow, what, what do you mean? I said, I don't know. I just found myself saying it. So I now need to go and look into <laughs> it. So I then went off and looked into it and I found amazing amazing stuff so the earth has this resonance of 7.68 hertz humans have a resonance of like 60 to 90 hertz bees have a frequency of 256 hertz now if you have water flowing underground it creates a geopathic stress curtain of 250 to 260 hertz so it's on the same wavelength as the bees so where you have those curtains is where the bees will be now the other thing that natural beekeepers and Tom Seeley would say is, oh, yeah, bees in the wild will live in oak trees. Now, when you look at resonances and frequencies, 
oak trees are often on that same frequency. And the reason they're on that same frequency is because acorns are sown by the blue jay as it migrates. And it uses these magnetic lines to migrate. So everything is connected. So the blue jay is doing these lines. So what I do with my work is I position bait hives and bees on these energetic lines and the bees are happy they're disease free you can bait hives you can attract them because it's on the same wavelength well then as i learn more about this and i talk about it i and then with the herbal medicine this is what connects i had to read about the history of herbal medicine and what was particularly interesting was when the first settlers went to north america and because it wasn't economically viable for physicians or um, apothecaries to go with the first settlers, um, the settlers were dependent on the wise women, the herbalists who had the knowledge and they would take the seeds. And one of the herbs that was introduced was plantain. So that was interesting. And I only and again, everything happens at once. I was doing a bee safari and somebody saw some plantain and they said, oh, that's white man's footprint. And I was like, God, I've never heard it called that. And then he said, oh, yeah, it's because the Native Americans would know that the settlers were coming because the plantain would be there. Mm. And then about the same time, I was reading about the history and how the, the settlements that survived interacted with the Native Americans. And there's lots of records of those first interactions and how strikingly healthy the Native Americans were. You know, they were muscular. They weren't overweight. They didn't seem to have any disabilities or ailments. And so... When people would say, how do you keep well? And they go, well, we use the herbs. We use the natural medicine. And then there's this question, how do you know which herbs are medicinal? And of course, we all laugh and go, oh, well, how many people had to die eating that or get sick or whatever? But the response was, they tell us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is when we're connected to the magnetic fields mm -hmm. and the resonance, it's our intuition mm -hmm. and it tells us. So when I first went to a site and positioned beehives i was like oh that would be perfect for bees that would be good and then when i mapped the area i found that those spots were on these geopathic stress lines so if you're tuned into your intuition nature will tell you yeah. whatever you need to know it's amazing it's all connected the we're great, all connected the great remembering oh yes yeah, yeah. i mean i just love hearing you, your enthusiasm and your journey is really special and inspiring and mind-blowing and i'm so glad we're having this conversation just real quick as an amateur beekeeper <laughs> just flash back so i lost my colony of bees last year they didn't make it through the winter um i hear that that's not uncommon but i still felt a little defeated by that um a couple things i do have a little electric fence around it now i'm starting to second guess what the hell those magnetic frequencies are doing to them. I also realized I had some pesky, enormous wasp type of bee living in my, you guessed it, oak tree that I tried to eradicate and got stung violently between the eyes because I was being ham-fisted about it. But I'm thinking I should probably move my hives <laughs> to my oak tree and get the my honeybees up there by the oak tree, A. But I was also advised and I thought I'm going to be very proactive this year to get them enough honey stored to get them through our winter. I'm not going to take any of it. I'm just, it's all about them. I just want to see if can I get them through the winter. But I've been pounding them with the sugar water because that's what was advised. And I would like to know I'm, I'm gleaning from this conversation. That's 
not a great i don't eat fucking sugar <laughs> like you said i've got it i've got it out of my diet why am i giving it to my bees i'm just doing it because the local bee shop said to do that so what do you recommend in lieu of how do i there's not a lot of wild forage down there of course i'm planting more wildflowers i'm buying pollinators when i'm out and sort of slowly um manicuring down there to be more wild manicuring to be more wild that's funny um but anyway what would you recommend in lieu of sugar water what should i be doing honey it just has to be honey because the more if you think of ourselves if we had a diet of white sugar from august to march how healthy would we be right we'd be sick as anything yeah and the thing is the other thing is i don't know whether you bought in your bees or if you bought in a queen but bees have been bred for human benefit. Yeah. So they're bred to be not aggressive. They're bred not to produce propolis. And propolis is the resin that they, they collect from trees and they fill up the hive. Now, in the wild, the bees would live in a, a propolis envelope. Mm-hmm. So they would line the whole interior of their their cavity with this propolis. And propolis is antibacterial, antiviral, mm-hmm. antifungal, antiseptic. Mm-hmm. But bees are bred not to produce propolis because it sticks the hive together, which makes it hard for beekeepers to take the honey out. So you've got that. Every time you open a hive, it takes 10 days for the bees to recover from not only the stress, but to re-regulate temperature. Mm-hmm. So you've got that going on. And wasps are the rubbish collectors of nature. So they will clean up sickness and disease. So if you have bees that are attacked by wasps, it's for the benefit of the bee species. So whenever people want to have bees in their garden, I'd say, yeah, get a hive, but don't buy in any bees. Just provide a home that mm. a passing swarm can come in. Mm. Now, the other thing that humans do is we try and prevent swarming because bees, when they swarm, have to take honey with them because they need the honey to make the honeycomb. And so we are choosing which queen cells to squish with culling drone cells, all this rubbish where bees need to swarm. They need to procreate and their procreation is the mother queen moving on with the adult bees and then leaving a colony behind of eggs and young brood to rear a new queen. And this is what I love is it's not the queen laying princess eggs. It's the worker bees feeding the eggs a different nutritional diet So just royal jelly to create a new queen. So the bees know everything about nutrition. Now, if bees are exposed to glyphosate or Roundup, it destroys their gut biome. And this was known years ago. And then there was a paper in 21 published that humans exposed to glyphosate. It destroys their gut biome. So bees are this indicator species. They're the canary in the coal mine. And what is killing them is killing us as well. And the other thing is there's this big move for buying and planting pollinator friendly plants. But just because it says pollinator friendly does not mean it's grown without chemicals. Mm -hmm. And and this is a thing everyone's looking for. What is it that's killing the bees? What is it? But just like what's making humans sick, it's our terrain. It's everything. It's water. It's the air. It's the soil. It's the nutrition. And if we don't have minerals in the soil for our food, it's not in the soil for the nectar. So we need to wild, we need to, you know, allow nature to heal the land to feed the bees. So there's so many things that are affecting bees. So the simple things you can do is make sure the inside of your hive is rough so that they can attach propolis. 
Um, don't open up the hive, don't feed them sugar. Even, um, I, I know in America, you've got to have frames, haven't you, in your hives? You're not allowed skeps or wild hives because you have to be able to inspect the bees. Right, they Wonder tell you why. they inspect it every week. Right? I know, which is killing the bees. And so a question I ask is, um, why have billions of pounds been spent on developing robotic bees? Why? <laughs> You know, why? It would cost a fraction of that to keep the bees we've got. And there's this general misunderstanding about honeybees and other bees. So um, here where I am, um, one of my clients, the Newton Somerset, is, is produces cider. So they've got all these cider apple orchards. And the most important bee for them is the red mason bee. And one red mason bee will do the pollination work of 250 honeybees. Hmm. Now, in California, where you have the great monocrops of almonds, you should have 4,000 species of solitary and bumblebees in North America, but they've been lost in that area because the environment is too toxic and will not enable them to thrive or even survive. And that's why there's this mass pollination where the honeybees are put on trucks and they're transported around America. So they do the almonds, they do the cherries, blueberries, cranberries, you know, and they zoom around. 40% of them will die. And, you know, then there's the knock-on effect on, on so many levels of the breeding of colonies for them to be big enough to pollinate almonds in February. Anyway, there's all that going on. But it's missing the point that you need 250 honeybees for every single mason bee. Now, in Sichuan province in China, they were in that situation 45 years ago in their pear and apple growing region. And they lost their bees. And then beekeepers would no longer provide bees for pollination because they were all dying. So now they have to use people on ladders with sponges on sticks to pollinate the fruit. But it takes 25 humans to do the work of one honeybee and 250 honeybees to do the work of one mason bee. We've got it so wrong. So and now we are thinking of the honeybee as being this great savior of our pollination or, you know, to soon be replaced by a robotic bee. But we're not realizing that the honeybee is a spiritual being that is the original herbalist. The honeybee provides medicine through transforming the minerals in the soil, through the herbs, into the nectar, into this honey that we should take as medicine. Mm -hmm. And the energetics of that and the reverence of that is healing for the people, as it says in the Quran. There's a whole chapter called The Bee in the Quran of the Wisdom from the Bee. So we're missing that. And we're now using the bee to be the pollinator. But the bees are not the pollinators. They're the honey makers. They're the medicine makers. Mm -hmm. So we need the bumblebees and the solitary bees to be the pollinators. We need biodiversity. We need all those 22,000 species of bees. And this is what we have to, to really address is the environment for all our bees and that biodiversity. And then to put the honeybee back as that guardian of the connection between human spirit and a higher spirit, they're the teachers. The Buddhists believe the highest level of reincarnation is as a bee. In the Quran, it's God gave the wisdom to the bee to pass on to humans. And in the West, we've lost that spiritual connection. And so our bees are more or less committing suicide, mass suicide, because they're going, what have we got to tell you? What have we got to show you? When will you get it that you're killing us and you're killing yourselves? Yeah. Uh, 
Preach. And you know, it's like not, yeah. what could be more indicative of how sick our culture is than just the concept of an acceptance of a robotic bee. I mean, that's everything that's wrong with with modern society in in two words. There it is. Yeah. And, and we like playing with etymology. I mean, just the word bee, bee. It doesn't get much simpler than bee. No, just being, being, well-being. Everything comes back to bees. Bees is everything. Mm. I did. I watched again. It was one of those Instagram impulse things, and it was a free course or mm -hmm. a very inexpensive course resonance science and i started the course and there was a lecture you know like a few hours in that blew my mind and i had to stop and i had to repeat what i heard because it was so mind-blowing and to absorb it and it was this indian professor and she was interviewing scientists from all around the world now we can probably all accept that there's many different religions and the religions all accept each other. So look at them as pillars. So you have all these different religions that are different. They're pillars supported or supporting a creationist theory. And so science that comes from those religions comes from the assumptions of a creator. Modern Western science has created its own pillar without other pillars, which is based on a Big Bang theory, and it's a reductionalist theory, which is saying that everything is a machine, the planet's a machine, humans a machine. If something goes wrong, we break it down to its individual parts, and then we find the bit that we can replace with a machine and fix it. And, and because there's no creator, there's no life after death, there's no source, there's no karma, there's no consequence consequence and so we can live our lives taking because it doesn't matter and once we've demolished this planet we can just go somewhere else and that is the problem and it's become a solid solid pillar that is not allowing any other pillars of wisdom to say well hang on a minute but what if or prove there's no creator and that was so mind-blowing to me and it also enabled me to have compassion for the science and the scientists who cannot comprehend that nature can heal, nature can recreate. And it also explains why none of the doctors or the geneticists or even my friends who are doctors who saw me well, saw me sick, saw me well again, not yeah. one of them has said, wow, what did you do? Mm. You could help so many more people. We could help so many more people if we knew what you did not one of them is asked what, what do does that say? say what do they say Luck wow are you lucky? Nothing. nothing no they don't say anything it's the elephant in the room mm -hmm. it, they really don't they avoid me they don't say anything and i wasn't strong enough in the early years to go back to the geneticist and say look i'm well because i didn't want them saying oh we must have misdiagnosed you or it was a spontaneous recovery and i found i didn't want to be that ill person I am now the bee lady. I'm a well person. But interestingly, as time's gone on, and particularly the last few years, my health recovery, my story, my life is so valuable for so many people because I've recovered from the irrecoverable. I'm alive when I was told I wouldn't be alive. And it's a complex whole body syndrome that, you know, people don't normally walk about from. Mm. And 
and so that's so important to share that we do have that power and actually um the biology belief you, you've mentioned that before um oh gosh Dr. but um bruce lipton, bruce lipton. His, I listened to his book whilst I was sick and it gave me so much hope mm. to think, yeah, I've got a genetic condi condition, but I can rewrite my cells. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got all these minerals and Dr. Linus Pauling, he said, every disease known to man comes down to a mineral deficiency. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got the minerals coming in, your body can heal. It can do what it wants. So nutrition, environment, herbs, terrain is everything. And it's not one thing. It's not a magic pill. It's not just the minerals. It's not just the herbs. It's not just the water. It's the air. It, it's your mental terrain. It's what you believe and what you have capacity to understand. And if you believe we're a machine and once a bit's broken, it can't be fixed, then you're going to remain broken. Stuck in if that you cycle. believe, yeah, yeah if yeah. you can believe nature will heal, you've got to create the environment for nature to heal itself. The and it's the same with bees. Now, You've spoken about herbs and minerals, and but at the very beginning, you mentioned three pillars, I believe, herbalism, uh, plant minerals, and also water. Can we talk about water a little bit and, and your experience oh. with, with, I mean, we've covered it a little bit in past conversations, structured water. The course I took with Tom Cowan, we talked an awful lot about the fourth phase of water uh, as gels and, and our sort of just like our misunderstanding of cell biology to date and how a lot of it really comes down to this fourth phase of water structured water the exclusion zone I'm, I'm just starting to wrap my head around these terms and understand them but could you speak on water a little bit yeah i mean i i was inspired as an artist so before i was really ill by masuro moto um because of the with my work as an artist i was starting to wonder about I painted flowers. I did big botanical flowers mm -hmm. and I would grow the flowers I painted mm -hmm. and I would pick a flower, which I wouldn't dream of doing now, but I used to pick a flower <laughs> and hold it and paint it. And because I painted on silk, I'd have to work really fast. So what I found was that by the time I finished the painting, the flower died, or I had to finish the painting before the flower died. And also because I painted on silk, people would go, oh my gosh, the energetics of your, your painting is alive. It seems mm -hmm. like the flower's alive. And then when I paint in oils or watercolors, you've got longer and the flowers are long gone. So you end up working from a, a photograph. And so I wondered, is there a transference of energy from, you know, the life force of the flower to when I paint it? Does it get transferred? So everything is transferring and moving. And I just wondered, am I a conduit? You know, and I felt like I was a conduit painting, but am I a conduit holding the energetics of these flowers? So I was interested in Masuro Moto and particularly the, the putting a label on water for love and changing its structure. So polluted water just by putting it in a bottle and, and sending it love. And the thing where before I was ill and everyone thought I was completely crazy was the, the mass meditation all around the world and sending healing vibes to a particular jar of water and how it healed the water. And I'm like, wow, I just love this. So. I was conscious of the power of water and I have been having homeopathic remedies for, for years and years and years as well. So I've, I've understood that water holds a memory. It holds something and that we are such a, a large proportion of us is water. So the Masuro Moto helped me understand that if somebody is thinking bad of you, sending that bad thought, you're going to feel it. 
in your body. So it's really important that you can protect yourself from that. So you have to understand and you have to accept the absorbance of water. So part of the understanding of water for healing is understanding how much water you have inside you and how you have to keep it clean. So you have to honor it, you have to protect it. And then, you know, I, I used to be very trusting of tap water. So I, I always drank water, but I used to drink tap water. And then, you know, it's like, oh, and then, you know, I've got to have a filter water. So I had a, a water filter. Then I realized I was bathing every day in Epsom salts in chlorinated water. Mm-hmm. So you just think, what's the point of that? You know, it's all, I'm absorbing the chlorine that way. And one of the problems was I had a lot of chlorine um, toxicity in my body. So, or chlorinated phenols. So, um, so that's when I started getting whole house water filters. And then I came across this thing and this is, it's like a survival water bottle, but it has a filter in it that takes everything out. It takes out pesticides, hormones, chlorine, you know, you could put seawater in here and drink it. You know, it's amazing water. And I put my whole house filtered water in here and then I drink this and this is the only water I drink and it's the only water I've drunk for years and you know when you're you're sick and you try different things you'll get like a little you know one step forward and changing the water was like three steps forward Mm -hmm. and it was marked enough that I thought I can't go back and you know now if I go and eat out I will pay for a mineral water you know, I don't want the free jug of tap water. I want the most expensive, highest quality water you've mm. got. And then it's understanding that when you eat out and you want to have organic food, that they're washing it in lemon tap water. Mm-hmm. You know, humanity has to have a greater appreciation for the quality of water and the importance of that quality of water. We're taking it for granted. And I think just like our bees, just like our plants, just like our soil, humanity is taking things for granted and then it's becoming sick. You know, our water is sick. It's sick in the rivers. It's sick in the taps. And so we can't underestimate the power of energetics, of sending love to the water on the planet, sending love and gratitude to all the water everywhere and valuing the water that we drink. And and it is that it's it's not up to governments to change. It's not up for us to doing petitions. It's being the change we want to see, doing the things that we want to see, because then, you know, I go, oh, you know, everywhere I'd go, I would drink from this. And people go, what is she doing this tatty old water bottle? And then I get to tell what I'm doing with this tatty old water bottle and what it does, you know, and. And that's the thing. That's how we change things is saying, well, I'm not drinking your water because I want to drink mine. Thank you very much. Cause I honor my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at, at a certain point, one needs to draw a line in the sand. I'm experiencing that as well. As I've mentioned so many times, I'm a musician, I'm on the road. I'm sort of at the mercy of, you know, opportunivorism, right? I, or I used to be, I, well, whatever's around I'll eat or whatever's around I'll drink. And now the last two years, since I've been so hyper-focused on my health, on my terrain, um, I immediately feel ill after eating out, right? Even at places, I don't want to name any names, but there are some places that I am at on the regular that I can no longer eat at. And I used to feel sort of sheepish about it. And I'd sort of like 
pussyfoot around and maybe take a small portion. But now I just don't. I just don't. I don't eat at the places that I know will make me ill. And it sounds crazy to people. Even my own family members are like, God, like Mike won't even eat here. And, you know, as, as pointed out, it's like some of these places that I frequent, I need to take a test to prove I'm healthy enough to enter the premises where the very place I'm going to is the thing that fucking makes me sick. It's like the world is so crazy right now. I know. But, I mean, it sounds, it sounds maybe a little arrogant, but I've, as my wife even said, like, Mike is too healthy to go to these places. It's like, uh, and that there is something there's a schism there it's very strange i've sort of built a little castle around myself that is very hard for others to understand and i'm sticking to my guns because it's working and i do feel great and i am not trying to uh i'm not trying to prove anything from some sort of ego trip or anything like that although that is how it's construed um, I'm just trying to, like you said, be the change I want to see in the world. And eventually you you can't compromise just because something's easier or more convenient. Mm -hmm. And the more accelerated down this path of technological fixes we get, the more we need to put the brakes on and, and trot a new path. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and it, I know exactly where you're coming from. And in that sense, the last two years has been great for me because I haven't had to socialize and go, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, you know, people assume I might be vegan or vegetarian just because they think I might sure. be, but I don't. I eat meat, but I won't eat meat unless I know exactly where it's come from. Mm -hmm. And I can't eat strawberries unless they're organic. Mm -hmm. And people will go, oh, but they're local. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything just like a local beekeeper mm -hmm, doesn't, mm -hmm, you know, if they're mm -hmm. drenching their hive in chemicals and abusing mm -hmm. their bees, then it's not going to be good pure honey, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, we need, it, and I think you realize that you are living naturally and in alignment with nature, which is naturopathy and, and all about the terrain and protecting your terrain. And then you realize how far removed from that the rest of society is. And that's so difficult because it makes you feel isolated and it makes you feel difficult and awkward. But, you know, my whole family, I mean, my husband, you know, he's, he loves doing barbecues and, you know, if I haven't been able to get to the organic store and he wants to have a certain thing, you know, he loves that really cheap, mm -hmm. horrible coleslaw, mm -hmm. you know, that they do in supermarkets that's mm -hmm. really sugary. And he comes back with these big mm -hmm. tubs of coleslaw and potato salad. He goes, oh, I thought you'd like that. It's like, no, I just can't eat it. I just don't want it in my house, yeah. let alone I, in even, my body. Right. Even in our own household, you know, I've got two kids and, and you know, uh, we homeschool and so we try to stay on some sort of semblance of a schedule, but it's sort of impossible. But we do these little things like, you know, uh, take out Tuesday or whatever it is. And it's like, I, whew, I can't eat takeout food once a week. Are you crazy? Like yeah. I don't eat, I don't really eat takeout anymore. Maybe, maybe once in a while, like you said, if I'm really it's sure. It's not a treat. It's not a treat. It's not fun. But again, in our culture, like, ooh, takeout. And like during this whole couple years of lockdown, everyone's ordering takeout because it's safer. And it's just like, to me, 
I mean, I, I, I was just, I follow the Red Sox, right? Boston Red Sox. I was just, there was this wave of COVID that went through the clubhouse and the manager of the team had to bow out for a couple weeks. And he's like, oh, it wasn't so bad. I just sat on the couch eating ice cream and ordering takeout. And I'm like, this is a professional athlete. This is a leader of a professional athletic organization who is homesick dealing with this crisis that has gripped the entire planet and his response is to sit on the couch eating ice cream and takeout as like the responsible thing to do and i want to bang my head against the wall and most people read that and go like yeah that's what i would do too i know i know whereas i've i had onion poultices on my chest (laughs) and garlic on my feet yeah i do and interestingly my boys when they were young if they had a fever or they had a bad cold i would do the onion poultices and then i'd cover their feet in oil chop up garlic put them in a bag you know and then they get to that stage even i mean they're in their 20s now but if they're really poorly they go oh mom could you do that garlic thing or could mm-hmm. you make me an onion poultice they know you yeah know, my wife does know. the same thing onion poultice on, on under the socks yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so i smell lovely of onions yeah <laughs> but i got well you know so paula yeah. paula appreciate so much you you coming on and, and telling not just your terrain transformation story but really sharing with the world with our our listeners all that you're doing for the bees uh and i think that most of the listeners at this point now have exposure to plenty of conversations around the danger that the bees are in but i don't think i've heard in such depth the connectedness of the bee to the natural world the intelligence the divine intelligence that is imbued in the bee and indeed in all of nature and if we are to move forward as a species and heal this planet we need to reinsert ourselves into that equation as well because i think as you talk about science as a standalone western science as a standalone pillar that has removed the creator from the conversation i see that same pillar as removing the human species from nature herself. And that as, as Mike and I talk about, and as other guests have talked about, if we want to get to the root cause, if you're trying to get to the root cause of the problem in the body, what is the root cause of what's going on around us? And part of it is that we've removed ourselves from nature. And that to me as a mission statement for this podcast, and indeed, I think all of terrain theory needs to be to reinsert ourselves into the very definition of nature. And then to remember or go back to learning because i think the other piece that is a bit of a bit arrogant is to think that we're the pinnacle of evolution and uh-huh. even and even and this is where i personally um personally challenge maybe what's written in genesis and some religions that humans are here to you know lord over nature and the birds and and the creatures and i look at that and i go I don't think so. You know, I think it's the other way around that we're the newcomers. And this is what Daniel Quinn, the writer of Ishmael would say too. We are the newcomers. You wouldn't put the babies in charge of the nursery. We need, we need to, we need to humbly reinsert ourselves into nature and then go reteach me because we've lost that knowledge. Clearly many of us have, but so many like you are taking this path and going, I want to learn again. I want to remember because this is the way forward. And I think what I also struggle with, again, personally, is that we, Mike and I like to use the phrase, walk away from the pyramids, like this system is broken. And so we need to 
you know, create the new system that's going to work. One of the challenges I find is that you, we've sort of run out of room and that old system follows you wherever you go. And when you talk about things like glyphosate ubiquity, um, the pollution, poisoning of our water supply, you, you are up against it. You are up against a system that you can't just walk away from. You really do have to face it and tear it down in some regard. Do you agree? I, I don't, I, this is, this is where I struggle personally. Like, do I focus, like Mike would say, do I sing about what I'm for or how much attention do I put towards this system that I can't escape because glyphosate is going to sweep across my lawn unless I take action to shut down the use of glyphosate period. And that is the, you know, taking down the entire system. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and in the early days when I would speak, um, about bees you know when I first got well and I would share my story both my recovery and what I say about bees is very controversial you know to the health world and to the bee world so the way I'm advocating about keeping bees is so called because I won't put chemicals in my hives my bees are so called making everyone else's bees sick you know it's it's this crazy thing so so I've had a lot of thought about this and you know just take something like pesticides you've got a choice. I could take on the pesticide company. I could have a big enough voice that they see me as a threat and they're big enough to silence me, however they want to do that, either by ridiculing me or whatever. And the other alternative is to completely ignore it and then just just pretend it, it isn't there. But you actually have to have that balance. And what I see my journey is, is education and empowerment. And it's removing the helplessness that people have. We only have glyphosate because people buy it. If people stopped buying it, it wouldn't be there. But people buy it because they believe that it wouldn't be on the shelf if it wasn't healthy, Mm -hmm. just like all the food. They think, who Mm -hmm. would put food Mm -hmm. in a supermarket if it was toxic? They trust. They trust. Misplaced trust. trust. And it's really difficult when you challenge people's trust. So just for the last two years, if people... Um, if, if we go to the people we know and we say, this is what we know, it's not just a case of we're right, they're wrong or, or vice versa. If we are right, they then have to challenge everyone they've trusted in their mm-hmm. lives. They have to trust. They have to challenge all the politicians or the teachers, everybody they worked for, all their friends. How could they all possibly be wrong and not be caring for you? And that can be too big a step for for so many people. And so I think what we have to do is that creating the alternative. So I love that the doctors in in Australia that got laid off, they then just created new clinics. Mm -hmm. So then people have a choice. They can go, oh, actually, they look healthy and it's happy and I can phone them up and I can get an appointment. They're all wearing masks and they're terrified and they're they're shouting at me and they're telling me I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't get an appointment. Mm -hmm. Which one do I go to? You know, and it is that. But also, have you come across Greg Paul? Mm -mm. Oh. Oh, amazing. He did a great interview on um, health, freedom for humanity. And he is he has a course called The Sovereign's Way. Oh, yeah. Yep. 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 Alec has mentioned him. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Now, what I love, it's all about frequency and vibration. We create our own reality and the higher the vibration, 
the higher the vibrations around you and you attract more higher vibration things. Now, I stopped watching mainstream news 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I have on one level, I have no idea what's going on. But mm-hmm. then there's things that affect me. And I think, OK, I'm conscious of that and I'm aware of that. But actually, this is what I can do. So, you know, when the government started shutting down businesses, I realized that if I'm a food business, I'm then essential. So what I did was I invested in my bees. So I produce more honey. So before I didn't produce much honey, but then luckily because I was on that vibration and I was on the right intention for why Mm -hmm. I've got honey to help humanity Mm -hmm. to actually still be able to serve and trade a local beekeeper who doesn't feed sugar, doesn't use chemicals, retired and needed someone to have her bees. So I could increase my colonies authentically by they're only three miles away. I say you should never bring bees in for more than five miles. So I was able, you know, the opportunities arise. So it's all about raising our vibration. Yes, the baddies and the, the nasty stuff is there, but we don't have to have it in our reality. And if you think of the plastic straws, when people go, oh, it won't make any difference. But you look how plastic straws in one season went from being everywhere to being an absolute nowhere. And that was pure social media Mm -hmm. and social change. So all we have to do is when people, you know, and this is my passion about dandelion honey. Once people taste dandelion honey, they look at dandelions with a new perspective. Mm -hmm. So we have to create a new perspective of looking at the weeds so that people no longer want to buy the glyphosate, you know, and fear is not a way of inspiring people. So by saying, if you are exposed to glyphosate, it's going to kill you. People just go into fear and panic and think, oh, I need my doctor even more. If you say, wow, these dandelions create the most incredible tea and soup and, you know, and And honey, cordial and honey, then it's like, oh, my gosh, I want more dandelions. And nature (laughs) will go, hallelujah, here's more dandelions, Mm -hmm. you know. And so that's what I think. And I do, you know, I dip into my Telegram account and I watch all the doom and gloom and the horrible things that are happening around the world. And we can't help everyone. We can't change everything. But we can have these little bubbles of light. And the more bubbles we have, oh, early on in 2020, I remember seeing one of these great memes, you know, on Instagram. And it was like, do you feel isolated? Do you feel you're the only one in your environment, in your area who can see the light or who is a light being? And then it said, step back and look at the planet and there's little sparks of light encasing the whole world like a web, like a a net. And we are all holding the earth. There's just enough of us spaced around the planet to raise the vibration and raise the light. And I love that. So whenever you feel that there's more darkness around, just remember, you don't know who's not commenting on your posts or on your Instagram or your podcast, but is still watching you and is still inspired and is still having a little bit more courage to be themselves and to find their light. And that's what I think we really have to focus on doing. And I think that's what the bees teach me. Well, Paula, I know now when I feel like I'm in that place and feeling isolated, I will step back and think of that little dot of light over there in the UK and it'll be you tending to your bees. I appreciate so much you coming on and sharing your light and energy and residence um, with us. Tell me, how can the listener find and follow you? 
Okay, so I keep it simple. My name is Paula Carnell, two L's, spelt with a C, C-A-R-N-E-L-L. So I have my website, paulacarnell.com. I'm most active on Instagram. I have a YouTube channel where I'm, I'm trying to put more videos on. So I have my honey tastings, any little videos I put on them. So if you can find me on YouTube, I'm there. Um, yeah, so Instagram. Um, if you go to my website, you can join my newsletter. So I send a newsletter every month, um, every week, actually. And I'm, I'm quite open with my newsletter subscribers. So I'm very honest. I came out about being unvaccinated, you know. Um, and, and again, it's that being honest, being authentic. You know, if I have a cold or a, an illness, I've, I talk about it and what I'm doing to recover from it and why I think my terrain has has impacted that. So yeah, a, you know, newsletter, website, Instagram. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you again. Thank you for being. And we look forward to, to staying in touch and following your journey as you arrive at that manifestation of the 98 year old you walking on the beach healthy without a wheelchair or a cane. thank you thank <laughs> you it. and you young boys will have to come and visit me <laughs> you bet we will you bet hopefully we, will. we can connect if i'm when i'm out there april 2023 i'll i'll have a look oh. at my dates and let you know and from now on when someone says they see my hat and they say so you support the boston red sox i say no i support the bees that's what i'm gonna say <gasps> oh Yes, because the bees support you. Yeah, that's what this B stands for. Now I finally know. Yeah. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. You've got the mark of the bee. <laughs> that's it. They're speaking to us all around. It's amazing. Do you know, I, I needed some help and um, I did an, an advert and a lady applied for my job and she's actually called Bee. She's Briny Bee and Briny Bee is a rare bee and she has always been called Bee and now she's my assistant it's just amazing not a coincidence surrounded by bees no no <laughs> well thank you paula thank you for your time thank you bees 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 we really need to protect our bees we so appreciate paula for coming on to tell her healing story and to share some of her wisdom on the magic of bees if you want more of that check her out at paulacarnell.com and if you have a terrain transformation story you'd like to share with us, a return to health using alternative methods, modalities, medicines, send an email to ben at terraintheory.net. Nothing you heard here should be taken as medical advice, as neither Mike nor I are medical professionals. Remember that you are light, you are love, and you are your primary healthcare provider. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. Join us next time on Creating a Buzz About Health podcast with Paula Carnell. Buzz you later.